Hello and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty. I was absolutely delighted to be joined a couple of weeks ago by Leora Crudas, who is CEO of the Confederation of School Trusts. Leora and I have um, a wide-ranging conversation uh, talking about all sorts of things to do with schools and trusts and she shares some of her very thought-provoking ideas um, uh, looking at things from a system level. We also talk a little bit more about Leora's own background and experience um, in, in schools, in local authorities, in the union, and the work that she is doing at CST and how she has really um, pivoted that organisation to support trusts during the pandemic. So lots of food for thought in this episode and we end, a little spoiler alert, with a really lovely, uplifting poem that Leora wants to share. So do keep listening and stay tuned for that. As ever, I'd just like to remind listeners that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion around topics. The views my guest and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. Hello. Today I'm joined by Leora Crudas, who is CEO of the Confederation of School Trusts. Hi, Leora. Hi, Caroline. Lovely to be here with you today. Well, thank you so much for taking some time out of your very, very busy schedule to talk to us. And I'd like to kick off, if I may, with you telling us a little bit about yourself and and your career, because I think it's really interesting and I'd like our listeners to know more too. Oh, thank you. Uh, so, um, as you can probably hear from my accent, uh, I wasn't born in England. Um, I was born in South Africa, in, in apartheid South Africa, actually. So, a bit of a painful uh, social and personal history to carry with me, but it's taught me um, a huge amount and has informed the, the values and beliefs I hold about education today. So um, I did all my schooling in South Africa, um, primary and secondary, and um, went to university at the University of the Witwatersrand, where I studied to be a teacher. I never actually taught in the state system because the state system was still segregated. And by that, I mean that there was a different education system for white children than for uh, black children. So I taught in the closest I can describe it as would probably be a free school. Um, in what was then referred to uh, as a township just outside of Johannesburg. Um, so the school was funded uh, by, um, by non-governmental organisations and ran out of a community hall. And it was intended for uh, children who were being denied access to an education to be able to uh, receive uh, an, an education. So I was an English teacher there for a few years while I was doing my master's degree. Um, and at the end of that period, I had become very interested in not just in desegregated education, but in the concept of inclusive education. So um, I came on what was then a two-year visa to, to teach in England um, in the London borough of Newham, which then had an international reputation uh, for its philosophy of inclusive education. And um, I suppose in that time, I met my partner and then all these years later, and um, I'm still I'm still here. So having having worked in, in Newham, taught in Newham, I then worked for a little while for Newham um, local authority um, before uh, going on to 
a, a variety of jobs that ended up as director of education in Waltham Forest and then in Harrow um, before I left local government to become the policy director for the Association of School and College Leaders, um, which uh, was a job I absolutely loved in an organization I hold to be very dear. Um, but while I was there, it seems to me that the emerging sector of academy and multi-academy trusts really could do with a sector organization, a sector body that represented their views, that spoke authoritatively to them for, uh, sorry, for them to government. And so um, I left ASCOL to, uh, to set up CST. Fantastic. And uh, what, what a range of experience there. And that's why I, I think of you as somebody who has this real kind of system-wide system view and understanding. So could you tell us a little bit more about um, CST and what, it, what exactly it, it does as this a sector body, as you described it? Sure. So, um, as I say, when I was at uh, ASCOL, I felt that the, um, the, 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 the sector of academy and multi-academy trust was, um, was, if you like, under attack. So there was quite a lot of misinformation about what, uh, what trusts do and what trusts are, um, and that felt very unfair to me. Um, but also there was no organization that could speak authoritatively to government. Now, ASCOL, as a trade union, uh, could never be a sector a sector body because ASCOL set up as a trade union um, must represent its members as employees, if you like. Trade unions are set up to, um, uh, to, to I suppose, to protect the employment of, of their members. What I was interested in doing was speaking for trusts as organizations. Um, so you may be familiar with the Association of Colleges, the AOC. The AOC is the sector body for further education colleges. And interestingly, the AOC emerged, came into existence when colleges incorporated, in other words, when they left local authority control in the mid nineties. So the AOC has been around for a very long time as the, the voice of the FE sector. Um, and when uh, an organization joins AOC, it is the, the college that joins, it's the college that's the member, not the principal, not the chair uh, of, of the board. So um, I wanted to uh, set up an organization that had that same structure, that, that when a trust joins CST, it is the trust that joins. So we are not a CEO's organization. Um, when we're not an alternative to the NGA, so we're, we're not there for, for chairs and trustees, we are there to represent the trust. That does give us um, some responsibilities uh, to represent the trust as an employer. Um, so there's an employer side uh, to, to that as well. We have um, three strategic aims to advocate for the sector, speak up for the sector, to connect the sector up and to support the sector to get really very, very good at, at what it's doing, um, essentially to change the lives of children. Great stuff. And, and obviously, um, we've had, uh, an, I, I run out of words to describe the unprecedented speed at which policy has been moving and all the things that have been going on and this, this period of the pandemic or COVID-19 or however we describe it has has been extraordinary how how has your your role or the way that you're supporting trusts kind of changed during that period so at the beginning of the pandemic in in march um 
when it was clear that uh, the schools were going to be asked to restrict attendance for pupils. It's really important that schools never closed. Schools in England never closed. So attendance was restricted for pupils. It seemed to me at that point that um, as we were going into uh, a global pandemic and a national crisis, that what CST members would need was an organization that pivoted to speak directly to them and act directly for them. So that's what I decided CST needed to become, um, a real conduit to its members to make sure that uh, CST members had all the information that they needed in a very timely way, but also a responsive organization that could listen to its members and get answers on, on the things that members really needed kind of in real time. Um, so that's what we decided to, to, to do. And we, we put in place uh, some, some, I suppose, some channels that allowed us uh, to, to do that. So the, the, the first of those was uh, we moved to a daily briefing. Um, so we said every morning um, with, with our best intentions before nine o'clock in the morning, um, all CSD members would receive a briefing that would essentially set them up for the day, that would give them everything they needed using um, common English. Uh, so in, in a way that, you know, they could read it very quickly, they could digest it very quickly, they could pass it on to others within their trust very quickly. Um, we, we did those briefings every single day from the 16th of March to the end of the summer term, so about the 17th of July, I think it was. Um, so that was really very important. And I, I know from the amount of emails I got uh, from members showing the appreciation that that, that was uh, valuable to them in, in that period. We've continued to do that. Uh, we've tried to step that down a little bit to um, three times a week now rather than every day. But I have to say in the last week, <laughs> um, I have uh, resorted to a briefing every single day because of uh, the amount of policy change that happens in a, on, a, on a daily basis. That was the first thing. The second channel that we put in place was uh, to create a platform where people could speak directly to me. Um, so we started to convene um, agile Zoom meetings that were completely open to membership. Um, we did one for chairs, one for execs, one week on, one week off, um, completely open, no agenda, where people literally had the opportunity to tell me and also to share with their peers what was what was worrying them, what was on the top of their minds, what they needed help with. Um, and then I would make it my business to get them what, what they needed. I have to say we had absolutely brilliant support from our platinum partners. So our platinum partners are commercial organizations uh, that, that generally speaking already have a lot of credibility in the sector. So for example, I'll mention um, our, our two legal platinum partners, Brown Jacobson and Stone King, who have given um, very generously of their time right the way through the, through the pandemic to provide guidance to our members uh, in again in real time as and when that guidance was that legal advice um, was was needed so those are some of the ways in which we we pivoted the organization to be entirely focused on um, speaking to and for members fantastic stuff and I can imagine that so so useful such a lifeline to to those people faced with um yeah, all impossibly difficult decisions and, and challenges and that and that peer support aspect as as well being really important. 
but there is a sort of a general feeling that that I catch from kind of conversations that that I've had and other people that that we've spoken to on on the podcast and things that that that, that tr- trusts have as a, as a whole sort of fared better than schools that that, that are on their own um, du- during the challenges of the last year or so. Uh, what's what's your opinion of that? What's your take there? I think that's right. And I think there's emerging uh, evidence uh, for that. Um, So the way that we've been talking about that is that trusts have shown themselves to me to be the most robust of school structures during the pandemic. And that's because a group of schools working together in a single governance structure has the strategic capability and capacity to do things that a standalone school doesn't. So that's not That's not a criticism of other types of school structures. It's just, I think what we're arguing is that is the power of the group, the power of the group of schools. And we've we've seen that in um, a myriad of different ways. Uh, So for example, in terms of estates management, um, we've seen a much more strategic approach from trusts to estates management, to working, to supporting schools, working with schools in managing their estate. When schools were uh, asked to return in September and you know, huge amounts of work had to be done uh, to put, to implement the system of controls. A lot of the system of controls were about how you manage the flow of, of children and staff through the school, um, how, how you create uh, as secure an environment as, as, as possible within the Public Health England restrictions. Um, and trusts that had qualified people to support them, of course, they, they fared better uh, because they had those people that could go around the group, um, literally working on a school by school basis to make sure that those procedures were in place. Another example of that is um, the sort of strategic human resources element. Uh, So trusts that had strategic HR capacity were able to look at their workforce across the whole trust rather than within a single school. So, for example, if one school had a high level of COVID related staff absence in a particular week, the trust could deploy staff uh, to support that that particular school. And I think a third element that we've seen is um, remote education where trusts have been able to very quickly make sure that all of the schools in their group had the technological platforms and then the devices, um, but also the curriculum expertise to make remote education a reality very quickly uh, for all of the pupils in in that organization. Um, So this principle of robustness seems to me to be really important. And on that basis, um, I know this might be somewhat controversial for some of your listeners, but we are saying that really now all schools should be part of a strong and sustainable trust. Yeah, um, interesting. And I was also, I was reflecting there when when you were speaking, as you say, there's a there's a robustness and there's additional capacity um, in the centre of, 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 of trusts. Um, but 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 presumably um, in some smaller smaller trusts that isn't maybe necessarily there yet. And I was I was wondering um, whether or not you've um, seen an increased appetite for sort of merging merging trusts or forming slightly larger trusts. We've definitely seen an appetite for that. Um, so we run um, a masterclass and um, more comprehensive service actually with with Stone King. Um, to support and advise trusts that are 
um, considering joining other trusts or trusts that are bringing other organizations uh, in, into their organization. Um, and certainly we have seen a huge take up in our, in our masterclass, which is called Joining and Merging, um, which supports trusts to uh, make that happen safely. Um, so we're just running that masterclass at the moment, and we've got over a hundred uh, typically chairs um, on, on that masterclass learning about the principles uh, of, of joining and merging. So, so there's, there's definitely a sense in which um, trusts have understood that they need to build um, organizations that are strong and sustainable. Um, I don't think there's a single size for strong and sustainable, by the way. Um, I think it, it, it is an assessment for trust boards to make about the point at which they are strong and sustainable, but we've certainly seen organizations realize that they're not strong enough and therefore need to look to, to join um, a stronger, more resilient organization. Great, that's that's really interesting, um, and to, to hear hear about that large number of um, um, trusts thinking about that that that, that uh, yeah really interesting insight. Um, and I'm I'm curious uh, because obviously um, there's 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 that one side where you're kind of sort of preaching to the converted people who 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 realise this is a this is a good way forward. But do you think? Uh, this experience uh, that, that we've been going through will finally put an end to the sort of anti-academy narrative that's been really, really prevalent in sort of education media and the wider media um, of late. Uh, I don't know that I can say with confidence that um, the pandemic will put an end to, to that, but I'm, I'm hoping as trusts uh, are better able to articulate what, what they do, as they express the work that they do um, as, um, as, as civic work. And as, as we push this narrative, which, which CST has been developing for some time, that school trusts are a new form of civic structure. So what's important is that we start to, I suppose, do a bit of myth busting. So trusts um, are not businesses. They're not run by private people. Um, they are in fact, education charities that are set up purely for the purpose of running and improving, and improving schools. Uh, so trustees have strict duties under charity law and under company law, but importantly, trustees hold public office. They don't run the trust for their private interest. They are there to advance education for public benefit, and they are required actually to uphold the principles of public life. Um, so there's a strong civic ethic at, at the heart of trust that I think is, um, is, is, is really quite badly misunderstood. Um, so so there are quite a lot of myths. Another myth would be that um, sponsors or trustees or members can somehow make profit from, from trusts. That's simply not true. As education charities, in fact, academy trusts are not allowed to make profits. Um, if, there, if there is unspent funding, then that is invested back into the front line to improve the, the, the quality of education. So I think it's really important that um, we make sure that uh, where people are voicing anti-academy views, that those anti-academy views are not based in um, really, um, I suppose, misinformation uh, or mistruths. Um, I, th I think if we're going to have a conversation about whether we think this is the right type of school structure, and you know, I'm completely up for that conversation, that we have a conversation that is based in the facts, uh, not in the myths. 
exactly so and and i think some a theme that we've kind of come back to in, in, in a lot of the podcasts where we've been talking um to people involved in the academy's movement has been this sort of how how do people take these outlying cases or ex- examples of of bad practice and then just spin that out into something that says everybody is doing this and everybody is doing that and it's all all a bad um system and it's that's so uh damaging and i think it is it is interesting to think about the the period that we've gone through and the shared purpose of of education and and i think people feeling closer to their colleagues in in other organizations in some ways and um i know i've certainly had conversations before with um friends who are who are teachers and if they haven't experienced working for a trust or or don't know very much about it their immediate impressions were, were, were sort of negative and 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 hopefully there there will have been some kind of breaking down there's been so so much fantastic collaborative activity um across the sector and 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 a feeling that everybody is sort of in it together that um you know maybe some of that has been broken down on an individual level as well i don't i don't know I'd be interested in your thoughts on that so i th- i think i think that's right and um to your point about uh e- the, I suppose the elevation of a particular story and making that about the entire sector. We've had two pretty devastating panorama programs that have done exactly that. So they've done a good piece of investigative journalism in the first one into a particular school in a particular trust. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm certainly not going to defend the practices that we saw exposed to that panorama program um, in that particular school in that particular trust. Um, but the, the, the program was called the Great Academy School Scandal. And what, what Panorama then uh, sought to do was to say, here's this one example of this one school and, and hey presto, it reflects the entire sector. So that in, in, in my view is irresponsible. It, it, did, it doesn't reflect the entire sector. And unfortunately, when you've got a sector as big as ours, you know, 23,000 schools, 23,000 leaders with the, with the best will in the world you unfortunately are going to come across some poor practice and some even illegal practice and you're going to find that in any type of school structure so the really important thing is that we deal with that when we when we find it as panorama you know exposed in 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 that program but we don't then say and this is typical of an entire sector because that really is misinforming the public and I, I feel really quite strongly about that. So the second Panorama program exposed endemic cheating in a particularly small trust um, uh, in, um, in, in, a, in a London borough. And again, it, it, it made the case that cheating on the SATS test at the end of Key Stage 2 is endemic across the entire sector. Now, unfortunately, as um, the regulatory body for, for, for SATS, the STA, will tell you, um, unfortunately, there are a few cases of malpractice every year in the SATS, and those cases are across schools of all types, of all structures. Um, so there's no way that this particular endemic cheating in this particular trust reflected a whole sector. Um, and and in, in my view, very irresponsible of, of Panorama to suggest that that was the case. Exactly so. And yeah, you realise how much the media kind of shapes shapes these perceptions. Um, and it is very, very damaging. Um, 
And I think um, one of the things that, that that I've noticed, particularly from from work the key has been doing and other organisations as well, to try and support other schools is that um, oftentimes uh, trusts have a bit of a a, a head start around thinking through their resilience and contingency planning which is which is great Um, and I'm I'm really interested in your thoughts about how how schools trusts and other organizations can can genuinely create that that level of resilience and and do contingency planning because it feels like something we haven't talked about a lot in education before we haven't really needed to Um, yeah Yes, absolutely right. So this this is an endlessly fascinating uh, topic for me, and I, I hope not too dry for for your listeners. Um, but uh, you know, for, as a former director of education, um, I can tell you that local authorities have held quite a lot of that responsibility typically for schools they maintain. Um, so the concept of risk and risk management, typically, that is held by a local authority on behalf of its maintained schools. Um, as you said, notions of, of resilience, particularly corporate resilience, that too, uh, typically a discussion that happens in local authorities all the time, actually, um, but but not so much uh, in, in maintained schools. And likewise, with notions of contingency, it is actually the responsibility of local authorities to have contingency plans in place if something happens to a school they maintained. So, for example, if a school that a local authority maintains burns down, it, it is incumbent upon the local authority to very quickly put in contingency plans so that there's continuity of education and those children in that school continue to get an education. So once you become um, a trust, uh, you are a separate legal entity from a local authority. And essentially the buck stops with you. So all of those responsibilities that were once held by the local authority are now held by the trust board as the legal entity. So trusts have had to become quite good, quite well-versed in things like risk management, uh, in uh, resilience planning and contingency planning, um, because they have held those responsibilities. So while there was still much to learn in in the pandemic, there there was already a strong basis of knowledge in, in most trusts around those functions because they had been responsible for them and had been doing them for some time. Much less developed in in the maintained sector, not through any fault of the maintained sector or through any fault of the leaders in those schools. Quite literally, they had not been asked to do that because local authorities um, held those responsibilities. So uh, so it's certainly the case that I think there's more work to do really across different types of school structures on this. And I think the pandemic has taught us a huge amount about um, how we think about risk, how we manage risk, um, how we mitigate against risk, uh, and how we plan for contingencies. Indeed, indeed. And um, I, th- I think the the speed at which everything has been happening and changing has really put... Um, you know, school leaders um, at, at, at the sharp end on, on these issues as the ones who hold re- relationships with the parents and, you know, things things changing at the, the speed that they, they have been. The, 
you know, you, you can't go back to the drawing board and think about what you're going you're gonna to do. Action is required on such a, a short, short timetable. Um, so if you don't have that plan in place, um, that's a pretty scary place to, to, to find yourself. And yeah, it's enormous really. Absolutely. I mean, I, th I think what I'd like to reflect on at this point, Caroline, is just how brilliant um, schools have been. And I don't just mean schools and trusts. I, I mean, uh, schools uh, generally. Um, I think we've seen extraordinary acts of leadership during the pandemic. I think we've seen teachers and support staff who've been exceptional in their contribution to the national effort. And I'm not sure that there's been enough attention to that in the public debate. So if we just reflect on what's happened in the last 10 months, in March last year, schools moved to remote education within days of being told to limit attendance, even though they had never done it before. You know, exceptional achievement. They fed the most vulnerable, they cared about their welfare, they watched for their safety. Uh, then when schools were asked to open more widely in June, despite public concern, um, uh, despite parental concern, schools worked really hard to build parental confidence and, and trust. And then at extremely short notice, schools put in place processes for teachers to assess students as part of a different approach to awarding because exams were canceled um, last year. And then in September, I mean, this, this, is, this seems absolutely extraordinary to me. Um, there were amazing levels of attendance showing just how, from the first week of term, showing just how much parents trust schools, leaders and teachers. And then throughout the autumn term, schools assessed uh, gaps in knowledge, they put in place interventions, they taught young people intensively. Then comes the Christmas period, they worked through their Christmas holidays to work out how to implement mass COVID testing and to plan for provision um, in the spring term. And then a fortnight ago, um, when, when attendance at schools was again restricted, once again, they, they moved immediately to remote education while still making provision uh, for the children that need our support most and for the children of key workers. This time, I think schools knew more about remote education. So, so what we saw immediately on Twitter mostly, um, but also in, in emails and letters parents were sending to schools is that parents were starting to say, the, the, the quality and the quantity of remote education that you're providing exceeds our expectations. You know, how wonderful is it that schools did all of this and however hard it's been, and it has been very difficult most of the time, schools never stopped, not once to put themselves first. At every moment they have done their civic duty. I think, I think they are exceptional. I think they are a national treasure. Um, and perhaps just take, to take a moment in this podcast uh, to thank anybody who works in a school uh, for everything that they've achieved in the last 10 months. Indeed, indeed. It's incredible when you when you hear it sort of cantered through like that, when you think of of, of all the change and um, uh, activity um, created, created by those things. It is truly, truly phenomenal um, to, to think about all those people and the incredible work that they have done on behalf of, of the children and families that they serve. Um, I think it's fair to say that, you know, we, we're, we're, still, we're still trying to understand, but we recognise that there are going to be 
huge long-term effects um, of the pandemic across society that will be felt for years to come. And how, how do we make sure that schools don't become more responsible for solving these these problems um, than than they should be because it feels like you know in a lot of ways schools have been so so effective and and that part of the state that that touches you know so many people in so many ways um, that they might have to do more than their fair share here. I think you're right, Caroline, to suggest that the uh, effects of the pandemic um, will be felt for years to come, probably for a generation. Um, the educational impacts, the social impacts, the economic impacts. It is certainly already the case that we are seeing um, more children now living in poverty. And that is a desperately sad um, outcome from, from the pandemic. Um, I think it's important that schools, as civic structures, as civic institutions, work with other civic organizations now to, uh, to address those long-term effects. I think there are things that we can work together um, without compromising the core business of schools, which is the education of our children. But it will take um, a, bit of, a, a bit of imagination uh, for us to do this together. Um, but it was, it, it's never, it was never more important uh, that, that, that we value the child and that we act together in the interests of the child in society. And, and and what what lessons do you, do you do you think you know apart from the the, the lessons um, for society and, and for us all that that government should should be learning from this this period just just gone we don't we don't need to go into too much detail about the, the various um, policy changes is the polite word you terms the less polite word for it um, what are your thoughts there. I think it's easy to be critical of, of, of government at the moment. Um, and so um, despite this being a bit of an unpopular thing, I'm probably not going to do that. Uh, I think there are things, of course, I think there are things, there's a lot of things that government could have done better. Uh, but I suppose I would ask us to think about the fact that um, we are living in a time of um, national crisis. Uh, so the things I think um, that that we that we do need uh, to uh, to learn, but I'd like to reflect on um, the, the the way that decisions are made in the context of a national crisis. I don't think any of us would want a government that wasn't responsive to the most recent scientific evidence, to the most recent public health advice. We wouldn't want a, a government that sat on its laurels and said, this is a decision we've made and we're gonna stick with it, even if that flies in the face of the evidence. Um, and sometimes in a national crisis, decisions do need to be made in a just in time way. That is unfortunately uh, the, the, the context in which we, we are living. However, having said that, I think that we could and we should have been more strategic at times. So CST uh, has for some time now been making the case that uh, it is possible to get on the front foot in terms of planning um, and to plan in a slightly longer time period, even if we indicate through a planning framework uh, that there are things that may need to be taken quite close to the point of, uh, of, of decision, decisions that need to be taken quite close to the point of implementation. Even if we accept that, 
we can collectively construct a planning framework that means that we are not dependent on the Prime Minister making an announcement on a Sunday afternoon um, with an expectation that schools would implement something on a Monday morning. That, that, that behaviour really does have to stop. Uh, and, we, and government really does need to work with the profession to get on the front foot um, so that we can be more strategic and more proactive in our planning rather than constantly reacting. It is in nobody's interests uh, to be constantly reacting to announcements that we're hearing on a Sunday afternoon. Exactly. Yeah, I think I think that's the most the most useful way to think about it. You know, how can we actually move move forward and and accepting that where where situations are changing, where scientific evidence is changing, you do you do need to be responsive to that, but that there are ways of communicating that that are much more constructive and and give people the opportunity to to give their best response to them and um i i i was i was thinking about a lot of questions around kind of recovery and where we go um next and what you know schools might need to be doing by way of of catch up and i actually um watched a, a brilliant talk that you did in the summer and it was so strange because i kind of looked back and went okay and that's where we thought we were <laughs> <laughs> where then? <laughs> um, and then a lot of other things happened. And where are we now? Um, and, you know, in in this sort of jerky context, it does feel very difficult to kind of put any sort of roadmap for, a, ahead together. Um, and I think, yeah, we do just sort of need to start breaking out of that of that mindset. Um, otherwise, it will be it will be an even longer time um, before we before we move. Um, and just in closing, Miura, I'd I'd like to know what what gives you the greatest hope for the future. Um, the indomitable human spirit. <laughs> I think that's what we've seen from our NHS staff uh, and from the rest of our public services uh, right the way through through the pandemic. People that have run towards danger, that have put themselves in harm's way in order to uh, care about others and uh, long may that uh, continue. And I'd like to finish uh, with some extracts of one of my favorite poems by Maya Angelou that's on, on that theme. My wish for you is that you continue, continue to be who and how you are, to astonish a mean world with your acts of kindness, continue to allow humor to lighten the burden of your tender heart, continue to let your eloquence elevate the people to heights they had only imagined. Continue to remind the people that each is as good as the other and that no one is beneath nor above you. Continue to remember your own young years and look with favor upon the lost and the least and the lonely. Continue to put the mantle of your protection around the bodies of the young and the defenseless. Continue to plant a public kiss of concern on the cheek of the sick and the aged and the infirm and count that as a natural action to be expected. Continue to ignore no vision which comes to enlarge your range and increase your spirit. Continue to dare to love deeply and risk everything for the good thing. Continue and by doing so you and your work will be able to continue eternally. 
despite the extraordinary challenges we face, we will continue because we believe in the power of education to improve lives and indeed the world. Thank you, Leora. That was absolutely beautiful and absolutely beautifully read. And thank you so much for talking to us today. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. Members of The Key for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com. And please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions.